Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So qualifying for the Le Mans 24 hours is done and dusted with Neil Yarny taking pole for the second consecutive year in the number two Porsche. Just under half a second faster than the sister number one car of Timo Bernhard. Qualifying something of a damp squib after Thursday's near washout. The stage is set for what could be a, could be a classic race, I think. Joined by Gary Watkins. How many how many Le Mans is this as a journalist now? Well, I, I mean, I have to say it's my 26th, uh, so that's quite a few. <laughs> I can't believe that I got to 26, actually, but there you go. So I first came in 1990. I've missed one along the way, but apart from that, it's been a, an unbroken run. So how does that compare to Henri Pascarolo's number of starts? Well, he's at 33. He also missed one, so uh, I'm in good company there. I, I suspect I will beat him, unlike any driver i suspect records are there to be beaten aren't they but i think his is uh, pretty safe i also joined by glenn freeman uh glenn who's not at it is 26 and i'm on 24 hours you've been coming for the last 10 or so years on and off there, haven't you yeah mine's not an unbroken streak either but yeah it's uh, 11 years ago this week i made my first visit in my first week on the job actually i'm a little bit more experienced now i've got a bit more of an idea what i'm doing and so far unlike in that week i haven't forgotten to bring my past to the circuit on any days so, making progress. That's the benefit of experience. And we've got uh, slightly more inexperienced, Scott Mitchell, who uh, I think this is his troisième participation, as the French like to say. This is uh, this is Le Mans number four for me. Uh, I'm on a ge- sta- statistical oh. error already. This <laughs> is a very good start. This is a solid start to the podcast. I'm on a, I'm on a gentleman's four so far. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, getting more and more interesting by the year. I, too, haven't forgot my past this year, which I also did in... In year number one. Happens to the best of us. Well, uh, well, I can confess my first as a journalist was 2002, although I did attend before uh, as a fan. So, qualifying. Gary, no big surprises there, apart from the fact that it was, by Le Mans standards, actually pretty dull. Most of the action was in the first session, lots of rain yesterday, and we've got, we've got a Porsche 1-2. 
Yeah, I don't think we should be surprised um, that Porsche won two. I think if you'd have asked Audi and Toyota, they would have told you that we were heading for a Porsche one two. Just look at Porsche's qualifying record last year with the original version of this second generation 919 if that's not slightly confusing one of the most amazing stats from last year's world endurance championship is that a porsche 919 was never out qualified for all the regular rounds they were one two and here when they had the third car which they don't have this year they were one two three so a porsche lmp1 car was never beaten in qualifying they know how to work an eight megajoule battery hybrid system they, they've got the experience. Now the other two manufacturers have gone to battery energy storage and moved up an energy class. They should be nibbling closer to Porsche in qualifying pace. But I think that experience that Porsche had last year of getting the most from a battery system, that stood them in good stead. And also a little bit of conservatism from Porsche. Switching back to elements of last year's spec after some early problems this season. That's right. They had... Um, a problem with the battery on the number two car at Spa. That car actually finished second. Probably they weren't expecting that when six laps into a race lasting six hours, Mark Lieb was at the wheel and he, he was told, yeah, you've got a problem. Well, he realised he had a problem. A lap later, he was told, you're going to have to live with it. So basically they had very little retrieved energy deployment and what they did have was intermittent, but they sort of worked with it, played with all the settings played with the brake balance which is very important with these hybrid cars up their pace ran round in a race of attrition uh, and came home second analysis after that revealed that there was some kind of fault with a production issue with the battery cells reliability is the name of the game at Le Mans so they've reverted to last year's battery what they're not saying is what implications that has on performance I presume there is a performance implication because they have a a new spec of they had a new spec of battery for this year presumably it's not worse than last year's presumably it's better natural development so there is a little bit of a performance deficit for them but you know getting to the end of the race is what counts, isn't it? So correct decision then to switch back? Oh, it has to be, doesn't it? Looking at the, the P1 order, how it shakes out with the factory cars, you said we were expecting Porsche to be on the front and probably a front row lockout. If it was a two-by-two two formation, would we have been expecting Toyota 3-4, Audi 5-6? Or is that a symptom of the fact that Audi had quite a disrupted first qualifying session, which was the only session it counted? Absolutely. I think, you know, if you look at the pace we saw at the test day two weeks ago, Audi ended up quickest. I was expecting Audi to keep Porsche honest in, in qualifying. They didn't because they had problems. They missed the mad half hour straight after qualifying started. That period from 10 o'clock where it's still quite light, where you traditionally go for your times especially this year it was very important with the rain forecast most teams were expecting it to rain qualifying sessions two and three on Thursday so they weren't out in that point when traditionally the people are going to do the times that's not to say that that is necessarily the quickest time to do to go for a lap because of the rain the track conditions were always going to improve quite dramatically through those two hours of qualifying on Wednesday and we saw at the end Degrassi in the number eight car which missed a proportion of the opening hours. It was about 50 it? minutes. Yeah, I think he didn't it? get out to quarter quarter to 11. We saw him then going quicker than Fassler had gone at the start of the session. He then subsequently lost his time for a, a fuel violation but 
that's gasoline gas overuse of gasoline in the diesel that's engine, right the stewards report mentioned that he he'd used too much gasoline so either they know something that we don't or i think it's a typing error somewhere down the line Obviously, the qualifying times weren't 100% representative. Yarni's poll was a, a 319.733. I think uh, they, they reckon they could have certainly got into the 18s. But even so, Sarazan was the quickest of the Toyota drivers, just a second off. Would they be fairly happy with that, given that they, they know Porsche was going to be? Yeah, I think line? so. And also, that was such a lottery of um, uh, a mini session, that, that, that 20 minutes of daylight after 10 o'clock because everyone knew the rain was coming you know everyone was out on track uh talking to yarny um afterwards he w- he was saying you know it was just about who got the clear run his first lap he didn't get a time or he had to abort because of traffic his second lap he said he got a big balk down at Mulsan corner lost a lot of time went down the inside of a corvette he said the corvette gave him room but he he went wide so he he lost time there and we saw on the screens how he lost quite a lot of time with a toyota and another car coming out of the porsche curves so there was you know a significant time loss there i thought it was noteworthy that i think sarazan was the only one of the leading drivers not to complain of traffic or some other disruption so does that mean that we've seen the toyota's pace or would Anthony Davidson, who did complain about traffic mm-hmm. at the same time, have gone quicker? You'd probably say the number five car is the car, but then we know how, how strong Stefan Sarazan is around here. You know, multiple pole, poles with uh, Peugeot back back in the day. Yeah, perhaps we can say Toyota got closer to its ultimate one-lap performance in qualifying than the others did. I think that's probably a fair assumption to make. I, I remember last year, Toyota were... A reasonable amount off the pace in qualifying. We're so used to Toyota coming here with a fast car and not making it work. And I remember predicting that maybe they'd be in with a shot in the race last year, purely because if it became a race of attrition, they could just roll round a bit off the pace and make up the ground. But in the end, they were so far off the pace that they were, I think they were really out of contention before the sun went down. Do we at least feel that this year, you know, they are in the mix again and they're going to be in position, even if they don't have the outright fastest car, to actually capitalise on problems and put the pressure on the faster guys. Yeah, I think that's the key thing is maybe they don't have quite the pace of Porsche and perhaps Audi, but they are there or thereabouts. Last year they weren't, and and we basically knew that from the Spa race onwards, that they were going to come here and be out of the mix. This year, I think they can keep the others honest keep them under pressure you never know how strategy is going to play out you never know what mixed conditions are going to do traditionally Toyota goes well in sort of those sort of slick conditions where it's sort of neither neither wet nor dry Uh, whether we're going to see that this year don't know yet but I think Toyota are there to to put pressure on people and um, yeah and, and reliability as we were saying with regard to the Porsche battery reliability is it, I mean, reliability, of course, is always key. That's it's almost stupid to say that. So it should it? be coming in twenty four hours. Yeah, coming to Le Mans, but we're 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 we're, talk, we're all talking about reliability because of the issues the manufacturers have had in in the first two races. You know, people not having clean races. So that's why we're all talking about reliability. Of course, you're not going to win a twenty four hour race if you're not reliable, are you? But it's it's become the hot topic because of those issues. 
one of the things I think that a lot of people have been talking about as well, the Rebellion cars have been there to pick up the pieces in the first two rounds of the WEC. And we see them, I think the, the 13 car is, is is well up there in, in the points. Could we actually see, of the privateers, could we actually see them on the podium? And it looks like it's going to be a Rebellion rather than a Vicolet entry. You just want a Nelson Piquet Jr. win, don't you, after your recent magnum opus feature on the most misunderstood man in motorsport? They need to be reliable, but they've made massive strides this year, or rather they made massive strides over the winter. That was the main focus of, of their development, to end up with a reliable car, and it's paid dividends for them. If you take the first two rounds of the WEC, the number 13 car finished third both times. Obviously at Silverstone, it only got on the podium because of the exclusion of the winning number seven Audi. So if you take... Silverstone and Spa as the first 12 hours of the Le Mans 24 hours they're already in the top three and, and where can they go from there? Between the two Rebellion cars you've obviously got the car with yes my new my new best mate PK and there's two Formula E colleagues but it's actually the lesser known trio that's yeah. been getting the results so far. And that's really interesting and it's not just that they've been getting the results they've been outperforming the sort of number 12 car traditionally the strongest of the Rebellions. I think that's really interesting. I think that's partly the way that trio has gelled and perhaps if you look at the number 12 car with PK coming in it's a new lineup and so perhaps it just hasn't gelled quite as well I think the reliability is key because for some reason the number 13 car always seemed to be cursed it got the lion's share of the problems since the introduction of the uh, Rebellion R1 back in 14 it was always that car they always seemed to have some kind of uh, electrical or electronic glitch and it was it was as though it had it, you know it had the lurgy and it couldn't 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 shake it off finally it has shake shaken it off they've been able to sort of work on the setup in a way they weren't before because they're always trying to overcome problems they're benefiting from that but that that number 13 rebellion the two share imperatory cryhammer car was still almost seven seconds off the pace is that fast enough to hang in there against troubled manufacturer cars? Yeah, it's it's not about hanging in there. It's about running round. And if manufacturer the manufacturer cars retire or hit major problems, you know, that's such a big gap. Uh, a manufacturer car can spend a long time in the pits and come back from it. If I think if you look at, if you do the math from Silverstone, they were 20 minutes behind. 20 minutes times four, a factory car could lose over an hour in the pits and still come back and beat a rebellion and going back to those factory cars are we expecting problems obviously we talked about porsche's reversion in spec Mm -hmm. almost as a negative because it will have cost performance but then again we've got the porsche that has been the quickest car in qualifying and it's got a more known quantity package and then we've got an audi and a toyota that they've gone pretty aggressive with them Mm -hmm. to try and counter this massive performance game porsche found last year so there's a lot of new technology there we haven't seen great reliability from audi or or toyota Mm -hmm. so so you're kind of looking at this thinking well if there's six manufacturer cars if three are going to finish you're almost expecting the the toyotas and the audis to be the more the more vulnerable in reliability issues so where's where's the weak point in the porsche package good good question i think you know it, it probably has fewer weak points than the other two manufacturers cars i mean definitely because as you say it's the it's the proven package that's a reworking of last year's car which in turn was a redesign of the original car. So the concept has not changed uh, in the three years of, since their return to uh, top-line sports car racing. So not only do, is it the proven package, they have the knowledge of the package, whereas the other two manufacturers have changed concept. 
Audi has gone from the flywheel energy storage system to a battery. Uh, it's also gone up a megajoule class again. Toyota has gone from its supercapacity energy storage system to a battery and, of course, has a, has a brand new engine. I've got a question for the group, actually, about LMP1, even for Mitchell Adam, who joined us late, too busy, uh, too busy scoffing croissants downstairs. Well, he I had think. to come all the way from Australia, so we'll, we'll let him off. Yeah, if you, if you rode a boat over, he's looking pretty well for it, actually. Um, this year, we don't have the bonus cars, if you want to call them that, in the LMP1 class. I know we shouldn't perhaps take three factory teams for granted, given some of the eras that we've all witnessed through, you know, through the history of Le Mans. But missing that extra car from Audi and the extra car from Porsche, is that making a difference to the makeup of the field? And in the race, if we're talking about attrition and possibly bad weather, does the fact that we don't have as many big-name factory cars like we had last year, does that make this field a little weaker than we had last year, or does it not make a difference? We've still got Audi, Porsche, Toyota going for it, haven't we? Well, immediately we've got six potential winners on pace compared to eight last year, so mm-hmm. by definition that's weaker, isn't it, in terms of the, the number of possible victors? In the year that... Uh, the manufacturers aren't convinced of their own reliability. Audi and Porsche have downgraded. You know that that, that is nothing. It's nothing more than a coincidence. But it's it's a coincidence that could have a major impact on the race, to the benefit of rebellion. I guess we shouldn't overlook the fact that yeah, this does perhaps prevent the manufacturer lockout of the podium. So that's that's a very positive spin to put on it. Is that it perhaps creates a window of opportunity for an independent, which mm. we should see that as a, a, a great positive. We're at a point where probably Rebellion had have their best chance of getting on the podium, but they're actually probably the least competitive that they will have been for a few years, probably more or less on a par with last year. But if you think back to the first year of the R1, when it had the Toyota engine in 14, they came out of the box and finished fourth. Sure, they weren't challenging the manufacturers, but they were closer to the pace than they are this year but of course the arms race with the hybrid cars you know the the massive steps they're making in spite of the best efforts of the rule makers has just stretched the gap which of course the ACO and the FIA are going to be addressing over the next two years. Does the fact that there are reliability concerns mean we might see some of them doing the, the kind of old school thing that we haven't seen so much recently the old tortoise and the hare can you Slightly, yeah. slightly. You can't ease the duty on your on your hybrid system or anything to play conservative. No, that's no that's what I'm asking that's, the question. That's, that's the emphatic one. I think the game has changed. We're in a different time. I don't think a manufacturer could take the risk, especially when they've each got two cars, of sacrificing one car to go round off the pace. When you'd probably put your money on one, at least one factory car going through the race without problems being driven flat out i think that's going to happen and talking to all the manufacturers no one's talking in those terms at all the argument i've just explained is what they're all saying well that's a positive isn't it that's what we like to see at, at Le Mans, this these these all-out attack races that we've had in recent times i think the the, the first thing you noticed with the depleted p1 grid was was on the, the timing screens it, it looked out of place against the expanded p2 and, and gte pro fields but yeah, I guess once the once the race actually starts, I guess it's like anything like when uh, when we lost a couple of teams at the back end of the 2014 Formula One season. It's something you notice at first, and then once things get started and and the race is has been fought out by you know three proper manufacturers, as we've discussed, I suspect we won't actually notice the the missing third car. The only real loss is the fact that obviously two of uh, the three winners last year, Nick Tandy and El Bamba, have had to come back in in the wrong car this year. But ultimately, I think the nature of those winners last year with Hulkenberg from F1 
Tandy and Bamba, that they were essentially part-timers really added a different narrative to the whole race. You had the factory cars, well, I guess the lead two factory cars from both Porsche and Audi, but then they both had two cars of part-timers for want of a better term. And that was a really intriguing thing to follow when you saw things like Tandy Stinger in the middle of the night that, that really sort of set things up and added another another chapter to the race. As Scott says, the LMP1 contingent does look a bit skinny. It's a bit weird seeing the lead LMP2 car in 10th, essentially, by right. But yeah, once the race gets going, we'll have plenty to talk about anyway. And also, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? But you only need two cars to make a race. And there is one LMP1 car we haven't really talked about, which is the, the privateer by Collis CLM. That was seen turning into something of a bonfire on Mulsanne on, on Wednesday, but it did get running again yesterday. The car's qualified. I think Kaffer didn't do his night laps, but I can't imagine they won't let him into the race. So, you know, are we, are we taking that car particularly seriously? It certainly hasn't had great reliability over the years, so I, I wouldn't say you'd stake the farm on it being that, having an untroubled run, would you? No, I think it's reliability run in previous seasons and also in the first two races this year means that we shouldn't really be talking about it in the same terms as Rebellion in its ability to pull off a shock result. Well, Mitchell was saying that we've got the top LMP2 car in 10th place. You have to wonder how long before the top LMP2 car will be in 9th, given what we've seen from the the bike haulers CLM. Well, even at times during the the third and final qualifying session last night, the top LMP2 runners, Ventor, for instance, he was circulating quicker than that Bicolis car. And I guess ultimately Bicolis would not have been going for pace. They just would have been looking to make sure they were getting around and staying out of trouble. But how quick will that car ultimately be during the race? I think we're going to see an LMP2 car in the top six again. You know, it's happened in past years. You think back to Stracker finishing fifth or sixth a few years ago. Excuse my memory. Getting into the top six, an amazing result. We've seen it in the past with P2 cars and 6M5 cars. I'd put money on a P2 car, the winning P2 car, being in the top six. What do we know about strategy? This is something we haven't really talked about. I know the, the weather has disrupted things somewhat, so we haven't had a really clear look at things in, in practice. But are we, are we expecting the, the works teams to be pretty even, the Porsche Toyota and Audi in terms of well, I think, how far know, they can go? They're all be going as fast as they can, as, as, as we said. Obviously, there is a small question mark about number of laps. Last year, we saw all the manufacturers going 13 laps. Will anyone hit 14 laps? Porsche were very close to it last year. But obviously, 13.9 is not good enough, is it? You know, so... so um, but that gave them shorter pit stops, didn't it, last year? It, it was part of the reasons. It was fascinating last year because they could say they could do 13.99. That meant... They were only going 13 laps, so they could save a few seconds at each pit stop. What emerged in the races after Le Mans is that they'd found something in their refueling system which allowed them to gain seconds. So there was actually a double gain. A part of it was putting in less fuel. Part of part of it was the fuel that they were putting in going in quicker. That sounds a bit Benetton 1994 to me. <laughs> <laughs> Someone removed one of the filters. Well, it's it's something that flummoxed the other manufacturers but they set to once it emerged what was happening and I think they had an inkling after Le Mans once we got to Nürburgring it was obvious that Porsche had stolen a march Audi set to uh, when they came with a few updates for the Fuji race that was one of them it was fairly equal in the pits Toyota didn't find it until over the winter Uh, so the magic ingredient or or 
probably removing something, <laughs> uh, removing an ingredient was found by them over the winter. So more or less, it, it's their status quo in the pits with the fuel going in, or there was status quo in the first two races. What we see from Saturday, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. So it has equaled up. Exactly what they were all doing, uh, they haven't revealed. Has the Have the conditions we've had this year meant that we've seen a lot less sort of, should we call them, full tank runs exactly yeah so other teams gonna be i wouldn't say in the dark because they'll have simulations but Mm. they must have a lot less real information at their disposal at this point of race week than they normally do yeah um i think that you know that goes for what they can do on the fuel what they can do on the tires yeah they're going in slightly blind i think and does that mean that in the early stints of the race is going to be a feeling out process or do will if you're one of those teams do you just sort of go with 13 laps as a banker to start with and maybe look at if you're in the window to stretch it. How do they handle the feeling out process of the early part of the race? I think there might be some conservatism early on because obviously you don't want to be running out of fuel. There's a limit on the amount of fuel you can use per lap so that even the sums are perhaps quite easy. So they should know going into the race how far they can go. So we're now at that point where everyone's going to be asked to, to put their money where, where their mouths are. Oh, I want predictions. I want an outright winner. Do you want do money we as well? Uh, well I, I always want money. All <laughs> donations gratefully accepted. And in fact, uh, if I get enough money, I'll I'll edit the podcast after the race to make whoever pays the most look clever. So let's go to Glenn first. Which car? Well, I said earlier that I backed Toyota last year to crawl around and pick up the pieces of the other manufacturers. And I realised about two hours into the race that I got that horribly wrong. So I'm going to make the same mistake again and go for Toyota again. I will go for the five car which, as we discussed earlier, maybe the slightly quicker car. I feel like we've all come here so many times and watched Toyota try and fail to win Le Mans. It's, it's got to happen at some point, just like Porsche coming back and winning overall had to happen at some point, and we finally got that last year. So, yeah, I'm going with the five Toyota. And that's the Davidson, boy, I mean, Nakajima car, which, of course, led half of the Spa race earlier this year before an engine failure. So, so you know, that car's already got some pedigree this year as well. Mitchell. I feel like it's going to be the number two Porsche. It's been... Oh, you've picked the pole car. I know, I've been That's genuinely down. boring. I really understand if you just want me to leave the podcast right now, but I feel like that car has shown a lot of pace over the last 18 months and hasn't really had a lot of reward for it. But here, it's looking quick again. And as you guys were saying, there we do have a lot of question marks over reliability, but I just feel like, yeah, if things go well, which is obviously a big if, that that car will be tough to beat. Scott, are you, are you going to go for a rebellion? No, I'll I'll avoid the temptation, but I I will I will plump for for one of my Formula E friends, and uh, he keeps trying to turn this into a Formula E podcast. <laughs> um, I th- I think it'll be the uh, I think it'll be the number eight Audi. Yost and Audi's track record speaks for itself. I think that car has been uh, has been quick. It, you know, it's not been without its problems in the build up to the race. It's got a it's got a driver lineup that's searching for its opportunity to to get a, a breakthrough result after you know build on that. Spa win, uh, but get a proper big breakthrough result, which obviously would then put them in amongst some of uh, you know Audi's great driver lineups at Le Mans. And that, of course, is the the Degrassi Deval Jarvis car, which over the past year or so has has had a little bit of bad luck over time. But they won at Spa, so maybe that's the start of something big. I don't mean to take us off of the predictions topic, but we talked about troubles for that car. Gary, do we know much more about what happened in practice? Was yeah, it as they... simple as? It went off or went over a curb yeah, or something. Yeah, went over and a curb, jumped in the air, and obviously the problem was with the the gearbox, the high the gearbox for the hybrid system. 
uh, so it went up in up in the air. Obviously, the hybrid system is doing things. It lands. It's all a bit skew whiff. Puts forces it into the gearbox that it's not designed to take. Oh, um, someone's left the phone on. Yeah. That's Mark. That's Mark down, Gary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Puts puts uh, puts forces into the gearbox that it's not designed to take. There are fail safes, but apparently they weren't in place at the time. The car went over the curbs at the first Mulsanne chicane. So it lands, it probably makes funny noise and, and doesn't work so well. So it had to be changed, for example. But also, uh, it's just sort of similar to that was, don't forget at Spa, when the, the number one Porsche had two punctures, it got the punctures both at the start of the lap. So it had to do the full long lap of Spa on a puncture. Well, you've got a, a punctured wheel that isn't turning. You've got a, the uh, the other side that is turning. You know, that wreaks havoc with the gearbox. And that's why they had to change the gearbox on the Porsche at Spa. It, it just shows you how complex these cars are. And just how a little thing, like running over the curb, jumping into the air, suddenly you've got a major issue. But is that too little a thing? to take into Le Mans as a potential risk for causing a failure on your car. Hence the safety mechanisms that weren't in place. Why they weren't in place, obviously, I, I don't know. But uh, there's a lot of buttons to press for drivers uh, in these cars. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it does, it does sound relatively simple. But, you know, for example, going back to the Porsche, it had two, pu- two left-hand punctures on a, on a bloody long lap. And right at the start of the lap each time. So it was a sort of a downward spiral. Of oh, it's happened again. Still not turned his phone off. A downward spiral. And it was just sort of, it was all precipitated by one puncture running over debris. There was a little bit of bodywork damage that caused the second puncture. It was, um, yeah, a, a spiral of events that, that did for them at Spa. So let's hope for Scott's prediction then that all the fail saves are in place for the race. And so, Gary, your prediction, and of course this will be the highest quality of the predictions in the ring. Am I betting my own money or someone else's? If I'm betting my own money, I'd I'd go on Porsche and I'd go on the number two car like Mitchell. I just think probably it's their turn to get some good luck. And we know, you know, there's no no doubts about their pace. uh, So I'd go for that car. I think if if, if I'm spending someone else's money, I think... Is, Is this just an out of spite thing that you want them to lose? You just want someone to lose their money, or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why does I don't it make understand a the difference. difference. Yeah. Audi have the potential to race with Porsche, so you could put a maybe. I'll 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 spread my I'll, I'll lay off my uh, bet on on the number two car with uh, an each way bet on the two uh, on the two Audis. I think either either of either of the Audis could do it. So you're only betting on half the factory cars yeah. to win, <laughs> and you're and you're ruling out the CLM entirely. I am, I'm afraid. I think if you want an each-way bet, you've got to stick a bit of money on a rebellion. There's a reasonable chance I'll be one on the podium. But that's that's not my prediction. I'm, I'm actually going to go for the five Toyota. They do seem pretty happy, don't they, Toyota? That's yeah. the thing that really stuck out to me this week. We shouldn't compare their their uh, their state of mind with last year because last year they knew they were going in to uh, the race without a chance. This year, I think perhaps... Perhaps you should compare it because last year they were so they knew they were out of it. They was just sort of going into a race. They knew they couldn't win. Now they're going into a race knowing they're in with a chance. But let's not confuse it with 2014 when they knew they had the fastest car. They sh- and they ended up kicking themselves because they knew they should have won it and they just didn't win it through uh, through you know just one of those freak things. That uh, <clears throat> that Toyota legacy of 
not being able to win at Le Mans. Uh, in, uh, in in this week's issue of of the magazine, which is uh, available now in in store and and online, uh, I remember the a, a quote from uh, Vassalon to to you, Gary, which was quite ominous. Really, it's a very dangerous thing to be saying when you're heading to Le Mans. When he de- declares quite confidently, "We go to Le Mans with no major reliability mm-hmm. problems." That's uh, that's a bit of a, a dangerous thing to say before you come to somewhere like here, isn't it? Well, it's interesting that if you look at the reliability problems that the manufacturers have had, Toyotas have had two retirements, uh, both at Spa with uh, engine failure. Well, you might think that's not very good when you're heading into a 24-hour race. But their analysis basically points to the fact that the engine, the new V6, was being put under certain loads in the compression at Eau Rouge, almost like a twisting, a bending, which which eventually precipitated the failures. Those kind of loads are not recreated at Le Mans. Obviously, they can't be 100% sure, but there does seem to be a genuine confidence that they're not going to have a repeat of those engine problems here. I'm sure, however it goes, we can all have a level of confidence, though, that the winning car will be an LMP1 car that has white, grey, black and red in its livery. Well, that's LMP1. But let's move on to LMP2. The grid, René Rast uh, set the pole time in the G-Drive Racing Orica. That's the Jota Sport run car. Head of the two, the two Signatech run cars, the Baxi DC Racing uh, Orica, qualified by Panciatici, and then the uh, the Signatech Alpine car of Lapierre with the Manor Orica of Roberto Mary Fourth. That's a 23-car field, so that's the biggest biggest single class. And it's looking like it's going to be a, a pretty interesting one. So who's your favourite, Mitchell? You're our LMP2 specialist this week. I think I have to be boring again and go with the, the pole sitter in this class too. The, that G-Drive Orica has looked quick all weekend. A really strong driver lineup, and and Jota has form here at Le Mans in terms of, in terms of getting things done in the race. And um, yeah, Ras was impressive in, in qualifying. He Polled by of, six tenths, which is, which is pretty massive. Yeah, and that was sort of after early in the session, he was up by that much, and then he was challenged by Pantanici in the, the, the Baxi DC racing Alpine. But then he responded again late in the session with another lap that, as you said, put him up by half a second. So it's hard to see a weakness there. It's Orica's in the top four places, so it's it's, it's an Orica that's that's favourite. Are we, are we expecting to see something similar to last year when KCMG led you know, all but a handful of laps? Do you think that's the kind of thing we'll see this year, or is it by its very nature going to be one of those ones where it ebbs and flows and there's little problems here and there? I think the weather will make it a very different race to last year at the very least. KCMG had problems at the start of the event last year. That car stopped in, I think, first practice or first qualifying with a little electrical glitch, and then in the race, sort of found itself in lead very early and then pushed on and had enough of a buffer that come Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, it could have a couple of little little hiccups again, but it still had enough in the tank. But I feel like the weather and strategy and being on the right tyre at the right time will, will mean that we won't have really one entry that controls the race this year. The other thing is the LMP2 teams are not the behemoths that the P1 teams are, so they are more likely to make mistakes, strategic mistakes, tyre mistakes, all these sort of things because they don't have the wealth of information and the manpower, perhaps, that we see from the factory squads. But I had a quick question for Gary, actually. Rast's lap was superb, obviously. But is this a man with an Audi LMP1 future on the horizon? A future, yes, on the horizon. I don't know. I suspect it's probably somewhere over the horizon. We know Audi likes stability in its lineup. He's very loyal, isn't it? Look how long it took Ollie Jarvis to get into a full-time P1 well, drive. He was there for years before he got into it. Exactly. I, I think, yes, we will see him racing a, a P1 Audi regularly. Of course, he did Le Mans and Spa last year. 
Will we see it next year? Almost certainly not. Will we see it the year after that? Who knows? I'm sure he will end up as a an Audi LMP1 driver, unless someone approaches him, perhaps. But is it on the horizon? It's No, it's somewhere over the horizon. He deserves it, though, doesn't he? I, mean, I used to watch him race in the German Carrera Cup on the DTM mm-hmm. support bill. And like Nick Tandy, when he was there, you just thought, like, you know, these guys are a cut above. And I feel like Rasta's delivered everywhere he's gone. Um, Absolutely. So it'd be great to see him get the step up. He's, he's, he's done, you know, he did a great qualifying lap at Spa. He was super quick at Silverstone and Spa in that car, but for bad luck and a, an incident each time they could have won. You know, Spa, they had three delays. Perhaps they could have won the class without any one of those three de- delays, which sort of shows you how how quick they were at Silverstone. Well, as as Gary mentioned, he was one of the guys in the the third Audi last year at Spa and and Le Mans. And obviously, Audi knows a lot about Rene, so and obviously what he can do. But to be squeezed out of that third LMP1 car to go back to LMP2 and really be the four man all weekend, you really can't be doing much more. And of course, let's not forget he is an Audi factory driver. You know, racing R8 GT3 cars. Uh, he's going to be in the car at the Spa 24 Hours with Van Tor. Another star in uh, doing LMP2. very well this weekend too. Yeah. So yeah, he's he's very much on the books at Audi. He's he's heir apparent, a bit like Nick Tandy is heir apparent for a P1C at Porsche. And as we know, obviously it's going to be the gentleman drivers that that have a big impact in terms of the performance swings. Obviously, Rusinov in the G Drive car is, is a pretty good. It's pretty good as far as silvers go. You look in the thirty six. I call him car. a fake silver. <laughs> but you know, you look at the Signatech car that's third on the grid with Gustavo Menezes as the silver in that car that seems a, that seems a pretty strong lineup as well oh absolutely you know Menezes is one of those who really shouldn't be a silver but he is because of the way the regulations are framed perhaps he's not the most obvious i think the, the biggest one who you'd say is hang on a minute how is he silver is ben hanley who's not racing here but he is racing in the european le mans series with the uh, dragon speed team the head of podium at uh, the last round last month at Imola. You know, he's a guy who was on the Renault's development scheme, a contemporary of Degrassi, Grosjean, has, hasn't raced for five years. That's how he managed to get downgraded to silver. But yeah, is he a silver driver? You know, of course he's not. No, he's got proper single-seater racing pedigree, hasn't he? Just picking up on the P2 field that we have got here, I'd like to know from the guys, how many cars do we think on merit have a shot at victory? Because it's it's a deep field, it's a it's a pretty strong field, particularly compared to what we used to see from LMP2. But there are some gaps, sort of through the top, maybe five, six, seven, eight cars. But so, assuming it was a straightforward-ish race, which maybe we won't get, how many cars on merit are in in with a shot of victory? Well, there's quite a few, aren't there? I, I straight away want to throw in one car we haven't mentioned, which is the TDS car of Pierre Thierry, Rio Hirakawa and Matthias Besch, which I think is seventh on the grid from memory. That's correct. So yes. that that's another car that's in there. So straight away we've got... Well, that shows that, the depth a, for the field, doesn't that's, it? That's a fifth Orica that you'd, you'd throw in, so that, yeah, that's going to be there. Well, even even through the murky qualifying conditions that we've had, the top 10 split by, I think, two and a half seconds or 2.8 seconds, and you, you have a car like the KCMG car starting ninth, that really shouldn't be starting that far down, but we know from last year what that can, what that car can do. I'd probably say there's... At least half a dozen really strong. I'd say eleven or twelve realistic contenders in class who who will be able to race for the victory. Who who's the strongest non Orica? If you had to pick a presumably one of the Ligiers, yeah. the, Mar- the RGR Sport by Moranka. 
Um, yes, I mean, but interesting. I, I would say one of the, the ESM car with Durrani leading the lineup there. It's interesting that the Shank car has done is is the top Liger with the Honda engine, which probably um, yeah, I, a lot of us wouldn't have predicted that. But it's got Van Tor at the wheel. We we know how good he is. Just he's just slightly ahead of Durrani, so he. He was ha- actually half a second ahead of Durrani in the in the sort of battle of the Ligiers. It's those two cars are the are the Ligiers that and the and the uh, Mirand car. It's those three that are going to uh, lead the challenge of the Oricas. I think ultimately, though, that Shank car that will have to serve a five minute stop go penalty in the first half of the race. They had to change an engine yesterday. They found a I think a crack in the oil pan of the Honda engine. So. That probably removes them initially, at least from uh, from outright contention, unless we get a bit of mayhem. How about of the old cars, the uh, the Jota run again, G Drive branded Gibson, which won a couple of years ago, probably should have won last year if it hadn't hit problems early on. It's arguably the fastest car. Is it? Is that car just a bit too long in the tooth, or, or should uh, we be taking that seriously? No, we should be taking it seriously. Uh, look at the time it did at the test day. It was up there. It, it was the first car in amongst the Oricas, actually with. Uh, uh, Jake Dennis doing the um, doing the time. One other point about the Jota car: time and time again, we've seen them. They don't necessarily have the outright pace here uh, in qualifying, but they 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 have uh, amazing pace over a stint. The car really looks after its tyres, and that's that's what it's all about in P2 qualifying. Even with a, a less interrupted, more straightforward qualifying sessions, we shouldn't really uh, judge its its race form by what it does in qualifying. I just find it fascinating we've got this many credible cars to talk about in LMP2 now. If you think of the journey that category has been on over the last decade or so, I mean, let's be brutally honest, we've come here in the past and we've had times where the LMP2 race has been a shambles mm. and it's become a race for who can get their car back out on the track in the final hour to take the chequered flag. Yeah. I mean, it's so good that this is a real race now. That's right, there's been a few, there were a few instances in the last decade where it was sort of, last man standing but we have literally seen in the old lmp675 the lightweight class the slowest car survive and win haven't we yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't i'd, I'd actually just come forward a few years into the lmp2 era the binny team won yeah, the that. class with a car that's basically electrical system was shot and they more or less hotwired it and did a sort of a rudimentary sort of secondary system they spent I, I can't remember how long they spent in the pits but they sort of yeah, they came up with uh, this system and got it to the end, won the class. Think back to one of our RML's victory. The car was opposite the pits at the Ford Chicane in, in the gravel, having led for some time, admittedly, with two hours to go. Uh, it got back to the pits. I think it lost the lead, but then I think someone else had problems and it, and it came through to victory. I mean, those days are gone in LMP2. Thankfully. Yeah, which is interesting because, of course, the LMP2 category... Uh, now we're in the last year of the current rule cycle. The previous rule cycle began in 2011 with production-based engines, cost-cap cars. And again, we sort of saw a little bit of a reversion in the first years to the sort of, sort of reliability stakes kind of race. But very quickly, the cars became quite reliable. But is, the, is part of the reason behind the, the standards going up in LMP2 that a lot of these teams maybe in a previous generation would have been in the top class but they're put off by the fact that privateers can't compete. You know, we've got some really credible teams running P2 machinery, but they have a better chance, they probably feel right now, of some glory and mm-hmm. still a top 10 finish running a P2 car rather than trying to do what, for example, Rebellion are doing. Mm-hmm. 
and just getting kicked out the backside yeah. for 24 hours by the factory cars. Well, Stracker were a team that competed exactly, in P1. Yeah. Uh, Jota, of course, P- competed in 675. They had a Zytec. Uh, it's not the same car as they've got now. <laughs> but they had, yeah, they had a Zytec, which, and that the Zytec became, became Gibson, uh, as, as many of you know. So they've, they've competed in that class. Yeah, I think I think a lot of a lot of those teams would in in a previous era have been competing in P one. And with the way P two has gone, it's really become a viable business model. And as Glenn said, having something to race for, something to achieve, makes it an attractive prospect mm-hmm. for for drivers to get in there, knowing that there is a level of a really good, stable, level playing field there across the different cars that that makes it work. I'm not sure how viable it is as a business well, model. Some yeah. team managers might, might might argue with that. Is anything but, really viable in yeah, motorsport? Yeah. <laughs> but it's probably more viable than competing in uh, P1 as a privateer. So let's move on to GTE Pro. It's been a bit of a controversy in that class. Gary Watkins just giving us the uh, the international sign for I need to go. So Gary Watkins will be leaving us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So GTE Pro. Uh, we've had a bit of controversy there with balance of performance. The top seven positions are shared between... Fords and Ferraris. Dirk Muller setting the pole time in one of the Ganassi Fords ahead of the the sister machine of, of Briscoe and the best of the Ferraris. Bruni in the AF course, 51 car in third. We don't know at the moment whether these perform these balance of performance changes that are being evaluated are being put into place. So everything everything that is about to be said is heavily caveated. But I think Scott, we can assume that Ford on its Le Mans return is definitely going to be fighting for victory. Uh, yeah, I think um, the the big thing from fr- from qualifying was that the, the the huge jump in pace for not just the Fords but the Ferrari as well from the test day. But of of course, in the opening two rounds of of the WEC, the fifty one Ferrari has has led the way in terms of pace. It's been the sister car that has has picked up results as well. But the fifty one has been incredibly quick compared to its opposition. Yeah, the Ferrari we we knew was a proven package. The Ford took a win. Uh, it took its first win. Uh, in the IMSA Sports Car Championship at Laguna Seca, but that was a win on fuel rather than outright pace. So we weren't really sure what we knew about about the Ford. What we do know now from from qualifying is that on raw pace, it's absolutely right right up there. But what we don't know is obviously how any BOP changes that could come over the next few hours will affect that. But we do also know the cars seems to be reasonably reliable as well. So <laughs> there's four of them out there. So are we fairly confident Ford are going to go in as favourites, whatever happens? Um, I would not be completely confident declaring them favourites. Based on, we didn't get too much too much knowledge in terms of long long runs in yesterday's qualifying sessions because of because of the change in weather. The indications that we got is that the the lead AF Corsa Ferrari is probably the favourite for the race. The in in both the dry and 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 the wet run in the the fifty one car was was particularly quick. The, That's the Bruni Collado Piaguidi car. Yes, but it was also validated by lap times from the seventy one A of course of Ferrari and also the eighty two Rizzi car. You know, once uh, Matteo Malicelli had stopped spinning on the pit straight when the rain absolutely chucked it down in uh, in in final qualifying and Tony Volander got in that car. You know, that had a good run in the wet that was actually considerably quicker than any of the other lap times produced. So I think the I think the Ferrari 488 is proven as the car to beat this year. In race trim, we don't know entirely what Ford has got to play with. Speaking to speaking to some of the drivers uh, yesterday, they before final qualifying, they weren't particularly happy with their, their race setup. You know, everyone was aware they had 
Uh, Richard Westbrook described it as an absolutely awesome uh, low-fuel qualifying car in the night. No one was particularly happy about where they were in the race. We still don't know what they're going to be like in terms of reliability. They had an awful 24-hour debut at Daytona. They fixed a few things to Sebring. They've been going a bit better in the WEC. They've shown reliability here, but shown reliability over three or four lap runs, including in-laps and out-laps, at Le Mans in practice and qualifying is very different to being able to replicate that uh, in a race situation. I also think there's there's quite an element of risk these days for the GTE cars. We were watching trackside, and you can see the, the caution that everybody drives with, whether they're on their own or whether particularly they're in traffic. And the LMP1 cars really come into play with these guys with the amount of times they're, they're lapping them. Um, I, mean, I know you've been speaking to drivers, Scott, who say they have to spend so much time driving in their mirrors, which on a track as terrifying as Le Mans is, is quite a scary thought, really. So... Once we get into a race situation, all of these cars are at risk of, of collisions, of being sort of barged out the way or run over onto the gravel and the debris that collects on the circuit. So there are so many variables for these cars. It's not like the GTE cars are out there in a GTE race where they have the track to themselves and they're going to be running in quite a lot more clear track. And I think that's that's another variable that really can sort of throw this race wide open, especially when you've got so many different manufacturers all fighting it out and we might have quite a big spread of pace or they might have closed them up by then but there's so many things for these teams to consider so many things that are outside of their control one of the things that nick tandy said in the build-up to his return uh, to le mans as the overall winner but in one of the um the, the factory american porsches that have the one of two that have come over from the imster championship he said that it's actually uh it's actually in many ways much easier to do this race in an lmp1 car than it is uh, than it is in a, in a GTE, even though it, obviously you're dealing with more complex machinery, quicker machinery. But yeah, once uh, once we get into the race, that ability to it's a, that different kind of dealing with traffic. Obviously, you you are the traffic in that situation, and we've seen so many times in GTE Pro, you can get hours and hours into the race, you get well into the night, and you'll still have the lead two or three cars nose to tail or seconds apart. So what you really can't afford to do is over the course of a lap go from doing a 3 minute 54 to suddenly be a, do a 3 minute 59 because you've really mucked up being lapped by an LMP1 or a P2 car. I think also the, the race is so close, it also means that we can't afford to send you to go and get any sleep in the middle of the night because normally at some point in this race you get sort of an hour of GTE cars running nose to tail in the middle of the night, bump drafting each other almost down the Mulsanne straight. Everyone else has settled into a rhythm by then, but the GTE race never seems to calm down. No, I'm poised for a for a full zero-stop strategy. It'll be the first of its kind employed at the Mon 24 Hours. That's a dreadful idea. <laughs> I think there's potential for a massive shunt view if you do that. Obviously, we've talked about Ford and Ferrari as victory contenders. The, the best non-Ferrari or Ford in qualifying was 3.7 seconds off. That was the, the 92 Porsche of Maccaviecki. There's also... The Aston Martins and the and the Corvettes there. If, if there's not a BOP change, are we expecting them to be to be condemned to be battling in the lower reaches? C- certainly for for Chevrolet, the concern is if that is legitimately the pace they can run at. Four point seven seconds off four, off in qualifying four, for Ollie Gavin in the sixty four car. Yeah, f- high high three minute fifty five in qualifying. Now Corvette Racing thinks that it can get into the three minute fifty fours, which is the sort of race pace that the Porsche targeting as well. In again, using a very small sample set of data from yesterday, the Ferraris and the Fords were capable of doing mid to high to uh, mid to high three minute fifty threes. 
Now, obviously, with that being two and a half seconds off of their own qualifying pace, you have to assume that that was some kind of race simulation. There was some kind of race setup on that car to see what they could get out of it. If that's their race pace, then Porsche, uh, Chevrolet and Aston Martin, who we saw very, very little of yesterday, I can't see any three of those having an actual chance in terms of in terms of actual speed. You know, they'll they'll no doubt have excellent strategies. They're you know they're they're top class teams. They've got so much experience in this race. You know, they know how to get their car from the start of the race to the end in the quickest way possible. But I'm not actually sure that the quickest way possible for them is actually going to match the Ford or Ferrari. So it seems like it's going to be a Ford Ferrari battle to look forward to there but uh, check autosupport.com for any news about balance of performance change we do of course have one other class that's the the secondary gt class the gt am class no fords in there to complicate things none of the new ferraris in there uh, to complicate things either so we've got the the clear water ferrari 458 best looking tire on the grid <laughs> scott's very keen on the dragon uh, that was qualified on pole by rob bell uh, second on the grid is the car that Quite a few people have picked his favourite, the 98 Aston Martin, qualified by Pedro Lamy. So GTM, are we expecting that to be a little bit more straightforward and less controversial than the than the pro class? Uh, yeah, I think so. And the other thing is, you know, GTM is actually it's almost its own legitimate class uh, this year because it's got older cars in it. So there is actually more of a distinction now, more now than ever, between AM and pro. Uh, the other interesting thing about it is obviously we do have, we clearly have three different manufacturers in in the mix there. Um, you know, Rob Bell has been getting some serious lap times out of uh, the Clearwater Ferrari. You've got the um, you've got the 98 Aston, which is always strong around here. You know, there probably isn't a better better Ram in the field than car owner Paul Dabalana. And you know, we all know what Pedro Lamy is capable of. But you know, a car that moved up into contention and is third on the grid ahead of that AF Corsa Ferrari is the um, is the 88 Abu Dhabi Proton Porsche. You know, that's that's the car that you know, maybe it's going to fly under the radar a little bit. Maybe that's going to be the car that sort of fights for Porsche honours in, in in GTE. But I think I think certainly based on what we've seen so far, you've got to say that the, the Clearwater Ferrari is, is kind of relying on the excellence of, of Rob Bell around this circuit and is very experienced here. So by, by the, you know, when we're six, seven hours into the race, you'd expect it to be probably the 98 Aston, and the 83 Ferrari that are probably leading the way in that class. Clearwater's also banking on your support, Scott. It's a very nice T-shirt you've got on there supporting the team, your favourite-looking car on the grid. <laughs> I don't really know how to respond to that. What was it he Scott said yesterday? He said, I normally don't like chrome or dragons or something, but when you put them together on a GTM Ferrari, suddenly it all just all works for me. Greater than the sum of its absolutely. parts. And yeah, exactly, and that, you know, that... that that's something that I think uh, we can all we can all take from this is that you can turn up for Le Mans and all your preconceptions just sort of disappear. <laughs> <laughs> Probably unless it comes to having flames sticking onto a race car. <laughs> yeah. So life changing Le Mans for for Scott in terms of uh, things he likes. Um, well, that's pretty much all the cars. The only other car we haven't mentioned is the the innovative car, the the Oak Racing Run Morgan, uh, Frederick Sose, a, a quadruple amputee who's just the, this most incredible story. He's been pretty pretty impressive during qualifying, considering he's <laughs> considering his condition, and that he's effectively driving, uh, I was going to say one-handed, but that's not even really the right term. It's it's a sensational story. He's doing four-minute 01s in qualifying. His, his best time was one of those, and he did a few a few more yesterday in the dry. And I think he's going to be the car. All, all the neutrals are going to be cheering on. Well, he's the hero of this race in many ways already, uh, just, for, just for being here and just for getting onto the grid. And the thing that struck me the most is we've had really difficult conditions and we have seen a lot 
of LMP2 cars. Mitchell can vouch for this. We've seen a lot of LMP2 cars spearing off the road, losing control, bouncing through the gravel. We've not seen that car, even when Sose is at the wheel, throwing it off the road. And that, that's fantastic. If he'd had all these hours of dry track running, we'd have been impressed um, if he'd been able to put some good runs together. He has gone out. As far as I'm aware, he's done a few five or six lap runs in particular. And yeah, they've looked solid. I think he's been consistent as well, which is which is unbelievable. And yeah, as as we were saying the other night when we were talking uh, about this car, I don't think there's many able-bodied drivers who would fancy driving Le Mans one-handed f for a single lap, let alone for the entire race. Yeah, that, that's effectively what he's doing. And it's a, it's a great story. And it's fantastic to see him out there and doing a credible job as well. And he seems to be taking it seriously as we sh we should say i know that's a it's an odd thing to say but i know i think when it was when it was first announced it was quite easy to be skeptical about it this was a guy who didn't have any significant racing experience and he, he's done a bit in the last few years since since he his uh since his illness but he he not bitten off more than he can chew here and i think i think if you'd hope that if that car's still running at the finish um it'll be him he'll be taking the taking the checkered flag and i think he'll deserve a, a massive cheer cheer for that achievement even even if the car doesn't do enough enough laps to be classified as glenn says yeah it's an excellent story it's a nice little tonic as well compared to i guess the the political rumblings that we have in gte that you can still have that in 2016 as serious as lamar is as professional as it all is you can still have this sort of a project happen to really fulfill someone's life dream so plenty of reasons to look forward to the 84th running of the Le Mans 24 hours We'll be providing minute-by-minute -minute live coverage with analysis on autosport.com as well as hourly reports and all the latest news from the race. And we'll have, uh, obviously, the team you've heard from here, Glenn Mitchell, Scott, Gary Watkins, who's, who's departed, and myself, Ed Straw. We'll all be uh, bringing you the coverage. For those looking for even more depth, take a look at our Autosport Plus subscriber area. And this week's Autosport magazine also has Gary's excellent articles on Toyota's jinx at Le Mans and uh, looking at the end of the open car era at Le Mans. So, however you're following the race, enjoy what is set to be a cracker. Thanks for joining us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Reach new career heights with University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business. Flexible MBA and MS options. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired, fearless, unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply